0: All right, welcome to another show with Paul at realestateaudios.com. And you're gonna be listening to Seth Williams in a bit. Seth of retipsters.com. He opened up a blog site years ago, and he is a land guy. I wanted to get him on my site because I haven't interviewed a land investing guru, a land investing expert, and land was my bread and butter not too long ago. So I wanna get him on the show to talk about his business. And if you're not in land, I still want you to listen to this because it is a lesson about building your business the way you want it to run. Uh, see, everybody in land does this whole thing, This the, you got to get notes, you got to start having lots of notes, you got to sell these things for seller finance, that is the end goal of this, the note, notes are the end game. Seth said to hell with that and he strictly operated on a cash business basis and only selling six to 12 properties a year. And that's how he runs his business. He doesn't mess around with notes. He doesn't want to worry about people not paying. He just sells it for cash, and he has a volume of 6 to 12 a year, and it keeps them going. It builds enough for him to buy whatever he needs to buy in in terms of real estate rentals. So tune into that, and we have a lot of things going on at realestateaudios.com, mainly if you're on my email list. I am finally putting a stake in the ground, and I am showing and teaching people how to be a copywriter, how to write ads that persuade, attract sellers, attract leads, and how to close them using the written word. So I have did that since I started as a real estate investor for clients, for investor care, for myself in my own businesses. So if you're not already on my email list, go there. It's a daily email list. I do promote things. I do give offers and I do it infotaining ways. If you're not on there, go to realestateaudios.com and subscribe there. All right, let's get to Seth. So yeah, Seth, you have your hands in a lot of different niches. You're kind of like me. You've kind of spread out, tried a lot of different things, and now you're in land. So what's the story behind Seth Williams?
1: Yeah, yeah, good question. So my story started back in, man, I think it was like 2006-ish, somewhere in that range. And I say that because that was really when I first discovered this whole just general idea of financial freedom and passive income and the whole you know, the rich dead, poor dead philosophy, just stuff that uh, in hindsight seems kind of obvious, but I think many of us, the way we're raised, we weren't ever really told that. It wasn't an obvious thing until we're sort of spoon fed those ideas from a book like that and several others. So that was when I first realized, hey, I don't, I don't necessarily have to do this nine to five W-2 career. Like, There's a lots, lots of other ways that could be a lot more fun and a lot more profitable to make a life for myself. And, you know, in Rich Dead Poor Dead, he talks about real estate as an option, but uh, he doesn't really get a whole lot of specifics of how, like what specifically he did. And so uh, I just took that and I was like, okay, well, I guess I got to buy rental properties or I have to buy houses to flip or something. And I just spent like hours and hours and hours on the MLS trying to find deals. And back in 2006, It was a lot like it is today, where prices were going nuts, like it was impossible to find deals on the open market that would actually cash flow. And I was just banging my head against the wall thinking like, how do people do this? Like, I I can't find these deals people are talking about, the ones that actually make money. And it was really frustrating. So, you know, fast forward a couple of years, I took a home study course about this idea of buying and selling vacant land. And I was like, huh, that's interesting. And so I looked into it further and I think a lot of people, and I, I was similar to this, when I first heard this idea of vacant land, I was like, I just didn't really get it, it didn't click. But once I you know, learned more specifics of like how and why it makes sense, how you're able to buy properties for pennies on the dollar, and find highly motivated sellers, and they're actually not, they're not that hard to find for vacant land compared to other types of properties, if you're looking in the right places, it just really resonated, and I tried it, and it worked. And it was the first thing I ever tried that like really, really got traction. So I spent several years trying to figure that whole business out, trying to figure out more efficiencies, different ways of approaching it, different ways to send offers, uh, different types of mail to send out, you know, more efficient ways to handle the inbound calls. And anyway, just kind of like fine tuning it and putting my own spin on it. And uh, yeah, I mean, I I was able to do hundreds of, of land deals this way and realized like just how much easier it was than most other types of real estate in that you know, there were no improvements. There was nothing that was gonna fall apart on me. There were no tenants to deal with. And it really got cool when I realized I didn't even have to be in the same state as where the property was. Like you could, you could legitimately do this remotely. And that was just a big deal to me. And I was able to do it on nights and weekends in my, in my spare time. I could really scale it as much as I wanted to. Like I could either make it my life or I could just do it on, on the side as a hobby. And I was able to make more from my hobby than I was from my day job at the time. And that was just like, whoa, this is awesome.
0: How long did it take for you to, from 2006 until you started getting some actual traction in this whole real estate thing?
1: Yeah, well, the land thing didn't really even enter the picture until late 2008, 2009. Like That was when I really actually started trying that particular approach. And I think it was 2011 was the first year where I made more from my business than for my day job. What was your day job? Uh, my day job was working as a, it's kind of hard to explain exactly, but essentially what it boils down to is I was a glorified credit analyst in the commercial banking world. So I was dealing with a lot of commercial real estate deals, analyzing those deals and figuring out whether or not they were a good deal for a bank to lend on.
0: Okay. So you had your hand in some experience with real estate already. Yeah. a little bit. So was that a hard, a very hard decision for you to make to quit that safety net of a job?
1: You know, it was actually several years after that when I decided to pull the plug on it. Uh, It's something I could have done a lot earlier, uh, but to your point, like, I'm somebody who worries a lot. It's actually a huge personality flaw. I just spend way too much time just thinking about everything that could possibly go wrong. So, yeah, I spent several years, you know, working my job anyway, even though I had this other option. And when I finally decided to pull the plug, yeah, it was definitely hard, but it sort of came to a head when I my job was the bottleneck. Like it was the mm-hmm. reason why I couldn't take my business to the next step. And basically when it hit that point and when it, and it, it had consistently been that way for a while, I was kind of what I realized it was time.
0: So what was the income, if you don't mind me sharing, before you quit? Like what was that income from, from your land coming in on a month to month basis?
1: Yeah, well for me, I was always doing, well, I'll back up a little bit. I was doing uh, seller finance deals. Mm-hmm. Um, pretty regularly for a while until I realized like, I just don't like this. Like it is definitely a real and very cool thing how you can buy land for a really cheap price and resell it for a much higher price and pretty much on the down payment or pretty close to it, you make most of your money back. And then every month after that, you're making like pure profit. So that's a very real thing. But what I realized was a lot of people, unless you're actually doing like credit checks and really investigating your borrower ahead of time, a lot of people can and will stop paying you. And I just was really annoyed by that. And I didn't want to have to chase people down and you can repossess on the property and take it back and then resell it all over again. But that's a whole other process too. And in some states, that's a fairly easy thing to do. Uh, In other states, that's a much more involved, complex thing to do. Like you actually have to go to court and stuff. And so anyway, I decided to just start doing cash deals and focusing more on those big influxes of cash. So that was, uh, that was kind of the approach I took. And my monthly income, it was kind of spiky. Like it was all over the place, honestly. Like there were some months where I might make nothing in other months where I might make like 40 or 50,000 bucks a month. So it kind of just depends on the month, but it was such that the annual income and the dependability of that was close enough for me to be comfortable and just realize like, this is going to be fine. Like one way or another, I'm going to have the money I need.
0: Was that a a difficult thing to do to, to juggle? It sounds like it took you a couple of years to actually pull the trigger and quit your job. Yeah. Juggling that quote hobby of yours, which is almost kind of feels like full time or maybe, maybe not, but, um, to juggle that. And I don't know if you had a family at the time. Did you have a family at the time? Yeah,
1: Yeah, I did. It was actually very, very hard. I remember there were times when I was just like, I felt like I was going to go nuts just because, (laughs) you know, between family commitments and like, I do have to give my wife and kids some time. Like I can't just (laughs) let them sit by the wayside while I'm doing my thing. And also following up with people and closing deals and keeping direct mail going out. And it was nuts, you know, on top of doing a job, but really, what it, what it kind of boiled down to was it never really was a full time thing in the land business because it didn't have to be. Like, I didn't have to spend 40 hours a week doing that in order to make really good money doing it, especially if there's ways to like focus on deals that are probably going to pay out a lot better. It's kind of just spending your time better and not chasing after every single motivated seller who calls you. It's more being selective about now. Nope that's probably not going to pay off that well. So I'm not going to mess with that, but this one over here looks really good. So I am going to spend my time on that. And uh, and that's hard. It's hard to pick and choose which ones you're actually going to chase down because there's usually potential in all of them. There's just more potential in some than others. And uh, but yeah, I'm, I'm not going to paint the picture like it was easy. It was very, very mentally taxing. But at the end of the day, it was, I think what kept me going was realizing like, I know this can work. Like, like I, I know it's possible to make this all happen. And, uh, just kind of believing in that and, and seeing it work, seeing the deals happen, you know, especially after trying other real estate strategies and realizing how many things didn't work and how many things I wasn't good at. When I finally found something that was producing results, it, I just realized like, this is important. I can't let this go. I have to keep my head down.
0: And I'm interested to know why you shifted from the whole note, side of the business? Because everybody in land, not everybody, but a lot of people I know, they want to shift over. I need to get notes and I need to start selling these with seller finance. What motivated you to go into the cash business being that you're kind of, you know, you worry a lot. It would worry me about constantly having the volume of cash coming in every month.
1: Yeah. Well, that's actually, uh, I think that's a totally good question for me. I think it was, I mean, it's also worth noting, like, especially at the time when I quit my job, land was not my only source of income. It's not like everything was riding on the cash deals I did from land. I think land kind of was the bulk of it. Like that's kind of where the, the real meat was. But if there was a month where like nothing's happening in land, there were other sources of income I had to draw on as well. That was a, another big part of what helped me get comfortable with this. I think if you are gonna do like strictly land in nothing else, like you were intent on that being your only thing, then yeah, I think solid financing is probably worth dealing with the hassles that come with it uh, just because it's really nice to have some kind of uh, predictability in what the income is going to be each month. But for me, it's like because I had that predictability coming from a few other spots as well, I didn't have to like go all in on that. What were those other assets? Were they rentals? Yep. I had some rental properties. I was also uh, on the RE Tipster blog. There were a few things I was selling at the time that was making a little bit of money here and there. And that was pretty much it. How many rentals did you hold at the time? Two duplexes that I had bought at a really, really cheap price, uh, kind of at the very bottom of the market. And they were both performing pretty well.
0: So the land right now is pretty much just that you use it as your active income, your month to month cash flow. Yep. Awesome. So with land, what did you change about your whole selling process to sell? land at a cash price because I have that mindset of thinking it only sell on payments, A $1,000 down, $200 a month. That was my model at the time. So what did you change to actually start selling these things and how fast did you sell them at a cash price?
1: Yeah, I don't know that I really changed a whole lot. I think it's just understanding that when you're only willing to accept cash, just statistically, it's going to take longer, like add another three months or so, and obviously, like it depends on the deal. That's not always going to be that way. Sometimes it'll make no difference. Sometimes it'll be a huge thing. But uh, just realizing, like you got to be patient. Like everything's going to sell at some point. But if you're not going to give people any other way to pay cash for this or to uh, finance this stuff, you're just going to have to wait until the right person comes along. And then keeping those listings out in front of people in every possible place that you can. I don't know that it really changed a whole lot, other than maybe trying to think from like the days when I was doing seller financing versus not, but. And I think I probably am a little more willing to come down on price easier. Like if things aren't happening, I'm, I'm willing to have a lot of flexibility on that. And I'm also really conservative with the kinds of offers that I make. Like I, I hear from some people who are willing to offer like 30 to 40, even 50% of market value. And that's like crazy to me. Like I've never offered that much for anything in land. Usually I'm sticking around that 10 to 20% of market value range. When you, when you purchase. When I, I purchase. Mean, yeah. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. I think that's pretty typical
0: I think yeah. 10%. Was the type of lot, would, did that change at all? Were you very particular about the market location and choosing a, a, the right location?
1: I mean, a lot of the deals that I, I find these days actually coming through my website, through my buying website, like people will just find me and submit their property information and I make an offer that way. And it's not so much about like the size or anything, but... I, I basically just want to see, like, there's a lot of value here, you know, based on the market in which it, the property is. Like, it could be in right near New York City, or it could be out in the boonies in the Washington State, or it could be in New Mexico or Michigan. I just want to see that, like, there's lots of value here, and they're willing to take a really low offer. So yeah, it doesn't really, doesn't really matter. That's kind of one of the downsides, actually, to accepting uh, submissions and making offers through a website like this, is that you're, you're sort of a slave to whoever decides to visit your website and submit their property information. You never really know where that's going to come from, but at the same coin, like it's all free and really good deals do come through that, you know, that medium. And with direct mail, you're able to target things a lot better. Like you can say, I want only this market and I want this market with the properties that are in this size range or maybe in this value range And uh, I don't really get to do that with the website. It's more just, I take anything and everything, whoever decides to submit their stuff and the offers go out based on that.
0: So you are still doing direct mail right now for acquisitions? Yep, a little bit.
1: Yeah, it's uh, like the past couple months I've actually been trying to buy commercial lots, uh, which is a little bit different than what I've ever done in the past. But yeah, anytime there's like, I'm looking for this type of property in this area, that's when direct mail is definitely something that uh, I employ.
0: Now, I've heard in a podcast, somebody mentioning your name, it might have been a mastermind I was in, mentioning that you only probably do less than a handful of deals a year because you want to focus in on bigger margins and mm-hmm. less work. Is that true?
1: Yep, that is. Yeah, I'd say, man, I mean, that six to 12 range is usually what I'm targeting. And it- What do
0: you, uh, six to 12 lots that you're buying a year? Yep, you got it. And what's the margins that we're looking at here?
1: Yeah. So usually I want to see that I'm making like at least 10 grand on the deal. And obviously if I can do more than that, great. And on the same coin, that's the goal. Sometimes it doesn't actually pan out that way. Like sometimes I'll realize, oh, maybe this isn't worth as much as I thought. Maybe I'm only going to make five grand on this one, but at least like going into it, based on all the information I'm looking at, I want to believe that that is at least what the profit margin is going to be.
0: Are there any horror stories with that? I mean like buying a property that you thought was worth a lot more with and it was pretty much worthless?
1: No, not uh now, not really. And I think maybe it's because I'm like going back to this whole like I'm so afraid of things like <laughs> like I'm just really really careful with stuff. Like I would totally rather err on the side of just not doing a great deal than making a huge mistake. So for me, I don't have any big horror stories like that. Anytime I've ever like made a big mistake or lost money on a deal. It was on the type of property that you pay like 300 bucks for. And at the most you would lose 300 bucks, but not the kind where we're talking tens of thousands. Yeah,
0: and with these bigger margins, how long do you expect to sell these things? How long does it take you to sell
1: them? I think the longest I've ever held a property was 15 months. Part of that was because of the property itself, but also like I wasn't pushing marketing that hard the whole time. But yeah, I mean, usually what I would expect It's not a whole lot different from the other types of properties I've dealt with, the cheaper ones, like maybe six to nine months at the most is kind of what I'm anticipating it taking. It's kind of going back to that, I mean, the same general mentality when you buy any kind of vacant lot with this particular model is you want to make sure that when it's your turn to come and list the thing to sell it, you can list it for a price that's like well below anybody else on the market. So it's a great deal. So it's really the same thing. It's just bigger versions of that. Yeah. What are you doing to sell them and market? If there was like more consistent deal flow in the same spot, a buyer's list would be a lot more helpful, but it's not, it's usually not what's going on. I'm just picking them up from wherever they're coming in. So usually what I'm doing is just the usual um, Facebook marketplace, Craigslist, Zillow kind of stuff. And uh, somehow it's always worked. Maybe maybe I'd sell them faster if I had smarter ways of doing that, (laughs) but uh, that's kind of what I've always relied on. Hey, real quick, I want to introduce you to my
0: free daily newsletter, where I give out free daily tips to real estate investing strategies, marketing, and sales techniques to keep you, the part-time investor, moving forward every day. So head on over to realestateaudios.com, and you'll get a free report along with that free daily newsletter. Do you have a, a VA or anybody uh, under you?
1: Uh, I do have a VA, but she's usually working more on other stuff, not so much the land business. And that's, that's actually part of, uh, you know, I mean, there's opportunity cost in everything you decide to do, but that's one of the things, the luxuries of doing fewer deals a year is that I really can focus and pay a lot more attention to the deals I'm doing. So it's, it's not like I'm telling somebody else to do something and they're screwing it up. It's more like I can really make sure the quality is there all, all through the process. I'm thinking that it
0: sounds pretty nice to have a higher margin deal because you're dealing with, dealing with less uh,
1: tire kicker buyers. Is that true? Good question. The past several deals I've done, I, I haven't seen a ton of tire kickers. I don't want to say they're never there because they are, and I guess it also depends on what you call a tire kicker. Like if somebody is just you know asking if it's still available on on Facebook, like is that a tire kicker or is it um, somebody who like says, "Yep, I'm gonna buy it," and then they just flake out on you. I don't know, but. There are some of them out there, but um, I feel like I, it hasn't been a huge problem though.
0: How much time do you spend on, on a weekly basis following up and marketing the, these properties you have? Because I remember back in the day, that was the biggest time block was yeah. yes, following up and trying to sell these. Th-
1: yeah. we all not a ton. I mean, I, I'd say like at the most... Maybe in the craziest of weeks, I might spend like 10 hours a week on my land business, but more like five hours a week is kind of what I dedicate to all the stuff going on. So, I mean, it's not, uh, I mean, in terms of just following up with people, I mean, it might be a phone call or email here and there. I guess now that you say it, I mean, maybe there are fewer tire kickers on the bigger deals because I feel like there's not a ton of that. It's not like insane where I'm just sending out a dozen emails a day to people that are never going to respond to me. It's not really like that. So... It's kind of amazing,
0: Seth, that you have all this because it's you, know, you have a, a, a over six figure business. It sounds like with just land by itself, but you don't have many processes in place. You keep it as simple as possible, and yet you produce this this cash flow that that takes over your your old W two. Yeah. So I, I don't know. I guess what what are some some things going back that you would tell yourself your younger self back when you started two thousand six to two thousand eleven.
1: Yeah, it's funny. To ask that we actually just did a a podcast episode on my podcast about this exact thing. Like, what do I wish I would have known back then? I think for me, one of the big things was kind of just realizing how much time it takes, especially in the beginning, like that first year. It doesn't take as much time now because I like understand, you know, how to not waste my time. But when I was first getting started, it was just like, man, it felt like it was so much spinning my wheels and like trying to figure out, Okay. Like, what do I need to set up? Like, how do I do this mail thing? Like what's the right market? How do I follow up? Like, it was just insane when I think back on it. And I think part of that goes back to, first of all, not knowing what you're doing, which is normal in any new business, but also focusing on the smaller margin deals. Like there is a lot more of that when you're doing it that way, you know, like it's kind of crazy sometimes either you or somebody you hire has to follow up on everything or opportunities get lost and that was something that was pretty hard for me in that first year. And it got it got way better once I started ironing out a lot of these wrinkles. But I didn't realize how how crazy it was going to be that first year. <laughs> I guess I would have said, just be ready for a lot of time. Like pretty much all your nights and weekends are going to be tied up doing this. So just be ready for that. And I think I'd also, the seller financing thing was another, I think it's one of those things that is... Uh, it's pitched a lot to people like this is why the land business is awesome. And like there's legitimacy to that. Like there's, I totally get why. And it's, it works with land better than a lot of other types of real estate. So I don't want to discount that, but there were also a lot of uh, things I didn't realize I'd have to deal with as well with seller financing, like getting the right documentation down and understanding the laws in every state in collecting payments and tracking loans and tax stuff and dealing with people who stop paying. Like, there's a lot of stuff you're signing up for when you go down the seller financing route. And some people handle that by just not doing it. Like they just kind of wing it and don't do it right. And they don't use the right documentation. And I think it, that can work to a point, but at some point it can kind of come back to bite you, especially if you get lots of deals that are all set up wrong. Like occasionally can, can uh, come back to bite you, but I want to make sure I'm doing stuff right before I really get into it. And, uh, I don't know there's it's just, uh, there's a lot tied in with the seller financing piece that not everybody realizes.
0: Yeah, I agree. There's, there's overhead and then the follow-up when somebody doesn't pay, which, which does happen. I'm dealing with it right now. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. so I, I mean, I, I love it. I love that you kind of um, thought outside of the box here because the box and land is always, hey, uh, jump into notes and You need to start building up notes while here Seth, he's like, no, nah, I don't want to deal with that. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to design my business the way, way I want.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's uh, it's teach throwing, you know, I mean, I'm not saying it's bad. I just, I just think like anything, there's trade-offs, you know, you're crazy. If you're, if you're not paying attention to that and realizing, Oh, there's probably a, pi- a price to pay over here. If I go this way, just like there's a price to pay if I go over this way. <laughs> so I, I just realized the price to pay with not doing sell-up financing in my case, I'm okay with that. So.
0: Yeah. yeah. And, and it kind of, it's uh, congruent with your whole personality. Like you are saying, you worry a lot and i kind of worry a lot as well so if you have your you, most of your income coming from notes and you might be worried about you know 30% 40% not paying from a recession is that kind of give you a clear mind given your personality yeah i think so
1: in my experience with seller financing it was probably like maybe like a third or so of people would either start paying late or just stop paying altogether and uh and i think it like it's not necessarily a terrible thing if you just know what to do when that happens. And again, like in some States, it's pretty simple actually. Like you send out some notifications and you can terminate the land contract or whatever you used and it's over. And that's, if that's the case, and if you know what to do, then it's fine. And it's, it's a little annoying to have to do that when you planned on getting money. But, but in other States, like it's not that simple. Even if you, and some people say, you know, you can handle it by just not recording the seller financing documentation. And then the title is clear. And that's sort of true. But if that seller has a copy of a signed land contract and they've ever paid you anything for it, again, I'm not a lawyer here. So don't like quote me on that, but uh, they basically have an equitable interest in the property and they can give you trouble if you don't go through the proper channels of terminating the seller financing note. And you know, not everybody will do that, but like, if you really want to follow a letter of the law and like do, do it the way an attorney would tell you to do it, at least the attorneys I've talked to, it's not that simple. And some people are okay, just like dismissing that and they just don't care. But I I just get hung up on that stuff. You know, I want to do it right. I don't want to just wing it and like not care. And uh, that's part of the reason why. Yeah.
0: Now when when selling, going back to selling now, is there anything you do particularly different when you're posting up ads on Craigslist and Facebook and Zillow? Or are you just posting, you know, the the type a lot and uh,
1: the acreage and all that? Yeah, it's um in terms of what would be different. I mean, I, I obviously put up plenty of uh, effort into like making a good description and getting really good pictures, especially on the more expensive ones. The pictures are like, they're worth spending some money on. And the neighbor letter thing, it's, uh again, it's sort of similar, I think, to the cheaper end properties where like, in my experience, usually like twenty percent of the time, it will materialize into something if you send neighbor letters out to everybody adjoining the property. And I found that to be pretty similar, but um, just realizing like that can pay dividends. Like that's it's not th- something to just skip. You're talking uh, about the neighbor letters,
0: sending the a um, letters to the adjoining.
1: Yeah. Tenants? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So exactly. So if you buy a property that has one on one side and the other side and behind it and across the street from it, and even like in a nearby radius, you could go that far if you wanted to just sending them a letter, just saying, Hey, you know, we just became neighbors and I own this property by years and send them a parcel map. So they understand what you're talking about and just highlight some very realistic, relevant things. Like, do you want to keep somebody from building something ugly next door, next to you? Like, do you, do you want to control what happens to the property right in your backyard or right next next door? And just giving them some valid reasons to consider buying the property. And sometimes people will be all for it and other times they won't care. But there was a, a property I sold um, just late last year where it was the biggest ROI deal I had ever done where I bought it for 500 bucks and it was landlocked and it was 10 acres and the neighboring property owner, within 23 hours of me listing it, they offered me 25000 bucks for it. Uh-huh. Um, cash? Yeah, cash. And that's why you want to send neighbor letters because, I mean, that person may not even know if you're posting it on Craigslist and that's it. So it's always worth reaching out to people and just saying, hey, just so you know, like this is here if you want it. I'll give you first dibs, that kind of thing.
0: Yeah. So that deal right there, I mean, that is not your typical no, land yeah. deal. Right. So I think when people listen, you know, the the headlines in certain platforms, are like, oh, make $25,000 with one land. So <laughs> no, it gets people going. Right. So it's all the little small, little deals,
1: little runs that make this business. Right. Yeah, I would agree. I think it's, uh, there's a lot to be said for like the small ones that make, you know, 10 grand or less type thing. Like There's definitely a lot more of those out there and they're easier to get and people are more apathetic about them. So I think you'll find a lot more motivated sellers. And yeah, so I I wouldn't discount those either. I just, I don't do them. Who's
0: buying these lots? That's always a question like, who's going to buy land for that much money?
1: I think part of that also is, um, you know, saying just the words, a lot of money, like that's kind of all relative to like the market you're in and the person you're talking to. But you know, like in that, Instance, I just said it was the neighbor and he ended up being a builder and I don't know, I guess he was flush with cash In other situations. I mean, it could be somebody who, I guess I don't really know their story, honestly. I I know that in most cases they're planning to use it themselves, but like, I don't know where they got their money or what they do for a living or anything. I mean, they could be taking out a home equity line of credit to buy it. Maybe they don't necessarily have the cash. So I don't know, maybe they got a cash gift from a rich relative or something, but, uh, yeah, it's just people who do have the money in some way, shape or form from somebody.
0: Is ever the usage of the property come into mind when you're, you know, you're, you're marketing, you're setting up ads
1: to sell it? Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, I, like just when I'm doing my due diligence, for example, like I usually look at enough information to know like this thing isn't useless. Like it's not wetlands. It's not like a person can do nothing on it. Like I would try to go through whatever my end buyer will end up doing. Like what are they gonna wanna look at? And I just try to make sure, is it pass all those tests? Cause someone's going to look at it at some point. It might as well be me <laughs> before it's too late.
0: You know, when I was doing this, it was, you know, one of the things that the, what you're selling, I guess, would be, you know, correct me if I'm wrong is, is the, the dream of building something on it or doing some, something to it, mm-hmm. uh, put it, making it into dirt bike track or whatever it was, or building a cabin on it. Mm-hmm. Now is building in most parts of the U S pretty much very, very difficult to do. You're asking if it's difficult to
1: build, like get you know, yeah. approval, or what part of that? Do you mean,
0: right, right. So, so okay. Uh, I, I guess one of the things I struggled with ethically in my mind was always I'm selling this. The selling point of land is, hey, you can build your own house, you can build your own cabin. Even though I didn't really say that because it's just for for legal purposes. Mm-hmm. But at in the the end of that, the reality of that is. It's actually very, very difficult to build on it, and the buyers have this this dream or this uh, anticipation that they're going to build something on it.
1: Well, I mean, it uh, it could be. I guess it just depends on the property. Like, is there a? Do you mean difficult in terms of like um, permits, county laws that that have restrictions? Yeah, because there's actually a few different layers of that. Like, there's the zoning, and there's like the planning department, and like what are the setbacks required, Mm -hmm. or like what you could build one thing on here but not another thing. Or you could put a could roll your RV on here, but you couldn't build anything. And so it's I think it kind of comes down to how in the weeds you want to get on that and how Did
0: did you look into all that but before your like your pre-research on the property you're about to buy? Did you look into what you can do and, and setbacks
1: and all that? Yeah. I mean usually the what I'm looking at is it kind of depends on the size of the property, first of all. Like if it's something that is 10 acres for example or five or even a couple acres in most cases you're not going to have setback issues there but even so i mean usually what i would look at is what is this thing zoned i might look up whatever the local zoning ordinance is, or even call the zoning department and just ask like what can i do on this thing <laughs> like based on what you're seeing tell me what you think i can do and i kind of get it from the horse's mouth and if they tell me that it's like okay well, there you go. You told me that. So <laughs> I'm I'm not lying or making anything up. This is buildable according to you, the zoning department or the planning department. This will all go into your marketing and your ads, right? Well, I mean, if I was going to say something like buildable lot for sale in this area, I mean, if I'm going to put the word buildable in there, I mean, that's the kind of stuff I want to make sure like it actually is buildable. And that's the thing, like there can always be that next level of problem that could come up. But like, what I want to do is I want to make sure I'm not finding out this is not buildable and then saying it's buildable. (laughs) Like, like that's what I I don't want to do is like confirm there's a problem and then lie about it. What I want to do is confirm that from these high level, you know, metrics, it does seem to be buildable. And I also have uh, there's a document I have whenever I sell a property where the seller basically has to read through it and say, I've either chosen not to get a survey or I did and I've, everything is fine. I've looked at this, I've looked at that, I've looked at all these things. I'm never going to come back and sue you for anything. Like this is totally my thing. And that's kind of what, I mean, in a way, anytime you buy anything at a huge discount, which is ultimately what I'm selling it for in the end, many people assume that anyway, but I just like make them put it in writing. So there's no confusion about that.
0: Have you had any problems in the past from selling it and then somebody comes back afterwards and has a
1: problem? Not really. The only time anybody has ever come back to me after I sold it was one person said that their neighbor claimed that they owned part of their property that I just sold to them. And what I did in that case, I actually, I probably went further than I needed to, but at my cost, I ordered a survey. So the surveyor went up there and staked the corners of the property I just sold to confirm, no, no, these are the property lines. And that resolved the issue. How much is a survey? I've heard they're pricey. Well, the one that I got was about 300 bucks. Yeah. It depends on the kind of survey you're getting. There's many different levels of uh, complexity when you order a survey. Is getting a
0: survey part of your, I know that that, that had to do with that specific problem, but do mm. you do a survey and part of your whole process of selling the property or no?
1: No, I wouldn't say it's the norm. But again, like if you're getting super high end, like I think it's okay to. It's not like a dumb decision to do that. Every time I've done a survey, it's when there's been either some kind of an active boundary dispute on the table like that. Or, you know, another case was I had a property that was on Lake Huron. And with any property on a federal body of water, the US Army Corps of Engineers, I believe, has jurisdiction up quite a ways beyond the shore. And there's also like flood zones and wetland issues. And if there's a lot of that kind of stuff going on, I think it's a good idea to get a survey just to like very clearly understand what the situation is and what parts of their property are affected by different things. And those can get a little more expensive too because you're you're not just doing a boundary survey anymore. You're like asking them to look at a bunch of other stuff. So but if you have a weird property like that, uh, survey may also make sense. But but usually though, the GIS parcel map is enough for me.
0: Seth, um, you've given a whole wealth of information here. And 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 you, I mean you coach land, right? You're still coaching, you're still having students?
1: We do offer coaching through RE tipster. It's not something that I personally do a whole lot. Uh Jaron Barnes, my counterpart. The coaching is more his his game. So but yeah, we do have coaching through, and Jaron handles that. We've also got the land investing masterclass where it's basically just like a giant and very organized brain dump of everything I know about the land investing business.
0: Like, and what's the best way to, for people to reach you or find out more about you?
1: Yeah. So, uh, the main website where I've been kind of explaining a lot of this stuff for a lot of years now is retipster.com. R E is in real estate, dot com. And people want to reach out to me. There's actually a in the footer of the website, if you scroll all the way down, I think there's a contact link down there and you can shoot me a message. Do that if you want to.
0: All right, Seth, I appreciate you having, being on the show. Yeah, thanks, Paul, appreciate it. All right, that's another episode in the can. And stay tuned for the next one and my marketing tidbits every single week on the Deals Today Day podcast. Make sure you subscribe, you rate it, you review it, and you share it, please. It keeps me going with this. It gets more guests on the show. And if you haven't, if you're not on my email list, Go to realestataudios.com, subscribe there to get onto my daily newsletter where I give daily mindset, business, marketing, copywriting tips, all for real estate investors right there and any special gifts I'm giving away. Go on to realestataudios.com.